I want to tell you about Doing Justice, a new podcast from Cafe Studios. It's about a prosecutor's role in our justice system and is hosted by former U.S. Attorney Preet Bharara. Wait, I know him. <laughs> the show asks if we should allow an elected official to run for re-election while under investigation. It follows a sex worker who was robbed and gets her day in court. Preet explores the key elements of cases from the unique perspective of the prosecutors grappling with urgent moral and legal questions. Subscribe to Doing Justice wherever you're listening now. This is Sue Paris from Grapevine, Texas. Get exclusive podcasts and more at patreon.com slash partners in crime media, just like I do. I'm Rebecca Lavoie, and this is Crime Writers On. Writers On is the original true crime review podcast that digs into true crime, pop culture, other podcasts, TV. And this week, the disappearance of a Canadian woman stumps L.A. police and web sleuths obsessed with the case. Is there something evil happening at this hotel? We talk about the Netflix series Crime Scene, The Vanishing at the Cecil Hotel. Plus, we'll circle back to discuss the finale and series as a whole of arguably this year's best podcast, I'm Not a Monster. Joining me to get that done and more is my real-life husband and true crime co-author, former TV journalist and love of my life, Kevin Flynn. Hello, Kevin. Hello, Rebecca. Also with us is journalist, true crime author, former defense investigator, licensed private investigator, certified cat lady, certified pet detective, and newly indoctrinated as seen on TV product purchaser, Lara Bricker. <laughs> Hello, Lara. Yeah, I got a new product. So I got the air fryer. Now I've got some things to clean my floor that plug into a cordless drill. Let me just say this. I follow you on social media and it is the saddest, <laughs> the saddest series of purchases. All purpose power. <laughs> Scrubber cleaning <laughs> kits. Yellow. <laughs> so this feels it like looked, a Toby Ball. So it's a throwback. Yeah. <laughs> it looked so fun. I was like, this could be fun. This could be an like an adventure. So it looks right like now. it looks like a toilet brush that you plug <laughs> yeah. into a power drill. Yeah. And yeah. what you run it along the floor or you Yeah, it scrubs the floor. So you have to bend over. It's like a mop. Holding a power drill. It's like a mop, but harder. <laughs> yes, a mop. Listen, neighbor Dan was excited for my purchase right. when I showed him. Sure, he doesn't have to use it. Exactly, exactly. So also with us is our captain of woke cynicism, the author behind the noir novels known as the City Trilogy, and our Patreon book club host and host of the Strange Arrivals podcast, Toby Ball. Hello, Toby. Hey, Rebecca. I... We're only six weeks into this year, and you're already proclaiming the best podcast of the year. No, so far. So far. Oh, so far? Well, I, gotta it gets, say, I guess it gets harder and harder to be the best as we go it along. It does. Now. It does. But I have to tell you something. Oh, no, I'm going to save it for the review. I'm going to save it for our discussion about I'm Not a Monster, about why I am saying that. There's a reason why I'm saying that. Because Kevin wrote it. Yes, but also I have reasons. <laughs> I have I have not so secret reasons. So, Laura, we were just talking about your as seen on TV purchase. I just have a follow up question. Yeah. Yes. Why is that easier and more fun than mopping? Well, so I don't like get down on my hands and knees and mop. I just use like the regular mop. And we have this awful tile in our kitchen that never is clean. And so I was like, well, I'm not ready to call out the floor person to come in in the middle of COVID yet, but I'll try this for $8. So 
I mean, I'm at that stage of pandemic life. Okay. Right? Yeah. So this uh, now gives you the opportunity to get on your hands and knees to clean your floor. Is that, that's why you're so excited about this. <laughs> I can use that little garden bench that I got from my grandmother so she didn't hurt her knees. That you know? sounds fun and easy. Yes. Wow. Kevin, do you want to get one of those like washboards to do our laundry next week that you attach to the drill and put the laundry on it and get on your hands and knees and just be like, er, 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 you want to do that? No, I need that for my jug band. <laughs> <laughs> Toby, is there a chore that you are in charge of in your house? What chore am I not in charge oh, of? Oh, that's what I like to hear, my friend. That's what I like to hear. Let's get Deborah in the room and see if she agrees. <laughs> yeah, there, I've, I've got my I've got my list. <laughs> is there anything that you always say like, hey, hon, you're better at this, so I'm just going to let you do it so you don't get mad at me, which is the classic Kevin Flynn move to get me to do yeah. stuff? I'm afraid that boat has sailed in our household. <laughs> Toby, just take it for me. Just do it wrong a couple of times. Nope. And you'll never have to do I've, it again. I've tried it. <laughs> I've tried that. It just or, means I get to do it again or you and can again just and pull again. your weight and not be an asshole and, and live by the Whoa. patriarchy. Yeah. Wow. You should see us trying to put the duvet oh my God. over Ugh. the comforter. 100% of the time. It's like it's the first time he has ever... Feels like the first time. Always. I sing that song every time we do Feels it. Feels like the very first time. <laughs> like, it's like you've never seen a comforter, you've never seen a duvet, and you don't even know what a bed is. Like, every single time. How it is, is that a possible? strangely complicated and difficult yeah. task. Oh my god, it is. guys! It's like putting a pillow in a pillowcase. It's not no, it's so not. hard. It's I don't not know what kind of pillows you've got. Oh, for fuck's sakes, guys! Are you it's guys like taking I go outside. an eight-foot pillow. <laughs> <laughs> I've I've gone out on my deck. And I have held the comforter and the duvet over the edge so I can shake it, so I can get it all to go down in the proper way. I have a tip. Mm-hmm. So they sell these. <laughs> this is so get a not, quilt instead. No, no, no. We have a quilt over our duvet. But my tip is they sell these like little alligator clips for in, for your comforter so that you, you, you attach the corners of the duvet with the corners of your comforter so they don't sh- doesn't shift around inside. If you don't have an alligator clip, Toby, you can use a roach clip. <laughs> Nice. <laughs> you can get one that attaches you to your four. drill. It's extra. Yeah, that's all right. <laughs> all right. Now that we finished the Martha Stewart section of the podcast, should we just start our review? Let's do it. Let's... I don't know. This has been fascinating. I think. <laughs> <laughs> let's just keep. Let's keep this rolling. Okay. Well, I have to. Okay. I have one more follow up then. All right. There are <laughs> harder ways to do things. Mm-hmm. Um, is there a way, Kevin, that you do a thing that you know is harder than the easy way, but you just do it because you don't want to have to see me for like an hour? So you just like. Talking about folding the laundry? <laughs> I take the laundry out of the laundry room and I put it on, I have the pool table covered with the leather cloth. Yeah. Looking right at the TV, I dump it out on the pool table, I fold, I look at the, watch the TV, yes. I bring you up. Piles of folded laundry. That's right. That all you have to do is take and put it in your stupid drawer. That's right. Somehow that's harder than no, what? I'm just saying it's harder than just bringing it up to the room where the laundry goes and folding it there. Just saying. I, I'm just saying the bed is low. It's going to hurt my back. <laughs> yeah. The pool table's up higher. Yeah. It's the perfect height. 
Do you get a thank you, Kevin, at least? Yes, totally. (laughs) You get to thank you by my telling him that I would have done it differently, but thank you for doing it. I think it's way easier for you to just shut the fuck up and put your (laughs) panties away. 100%, 100%. Uh, The thing that I do that's harder is I have started cooking for my dogs. Okay, real confession time. Okay. Oh, no. Should we go ahead and record the first part of our podcast now? (laughs) You know what's not harder? What? They're feces, because they... (laughs) I've gotten really loose and wet since you oh, started God. giving them <laughs> Those chicken are fun and rice. To pick up. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> Leading off. I'm calling uh, because basically my sister is in Syria and she just had a baby and she's in the middle of a war zone and I don't know what to do. When we left off in our previous review of I'm Not a Monster, we were on episode six and Samantha El-Hassani and her children were still in Syria when host Josh Baker learned the FBI wanted to arrest her. But the charges were not related to terrorism, but for lying to the FBI during her time as an informant. Did you make a decision to go to ISIS though, Sam? I can't really answer that because it has to do with the case. Um, I made the decision to... Visitation has ended. As Baker pulls out more of her story, he's nagged by the question of whether this American mom was forced by her dead husband to join the caliphate or whether she stayed because she wanted to. So Baker returned to Syria to fact check her claims that she was an ISIS prisoner, not an ISIS soldier. If you look on the walls, there's two bloody hand marks where somebody's put their hand on the wall and slid down. Smears. Yeah, smears of blood. We're basically walking around a graveyard. In the final episodes of I'm Not a Monster from BBC Panorama and PBS Frontline, Josh Baker tells us what he found out about Sam's time in Syria, the man who led her there, and finishes the podcast with an emotional interview. Spoiler alert, we are going to be talking about plot points for the finale of I'm Not a Monster. So if you want to remain spoiler free, go to the estimated time code in our show notes for our thumbs up or thumbs down review. Kevin, I just want to do full disclosure of the thing I referred to earlier of mm-hmm. why I wanted this podcast again. Yeah. Uh, I want more people to listen to this podcast. I believe it should be a hit podcast. I think it's great. Uh, You know, that's a little bit of a foreshadowing of my thumbs up review. But you know what I'm talking about? You know, when you just listen to something that you know is special and you know it's not as popular as it should be? Yes, we've been there. I mean, giving people the crime writers on bump. Yeah. So I just I do want to talk about Joshua's use of audio in this podcast. Mm -hmm. I think it was episode eight. Actually, I know it was episode eight where he fact checks that claim that Sam tells him she had been held by ISIS in a prison in Syria. And she describes the prison. And in the podcast, we hear Josh following in the steps of the story she told him. And we hear this audio interwoven of her storytelling and his being on scene. The area opens up louder, like it's more like it echoes a little bit. So it's like a larger room. Let me just stop and listen there, Josh. You, you notice how the sounds changed. If you were blindfolded and you got to this room, the echoes changed. You can hear how we're talking, the echoes changed. What did you think of that scene and how it was put together, Kevin? Look, I think there are two really extraordinary episodes in the remainder of this series. One is episode eight, the other is episode 10. So you're talking about episode eight here. 
Yeah, to fact check a person's story by going halfway around the world and crossing the Tigris River, or I'm trying to remember what, what river they, you know, on a, on a pontoon boat and all this stuff to go to, the, to this prison. Uh, That's falling apart. And count off how many steps it was from this to that to try to verify what she said. I think it was in- extraordinary. But the use of sound, I think, is really, really well done. You got to remember also that. He's doing double duty because he's also doing a film documentary, okay? In that, it's easy to show everything that's going on because you can just pan the camera and see here's the writing on the wall and here's how many steps it is to that prison cell. You can't do that in a podcast, obviously. So what what is the smart thing to do? It is to tell. Mm -hmm. You are showing, in this case, by telling, by giving your own play-by-play. This is the ultimate example of root talk. It's amazing. You know, we're going to go on the road. We're going to tell you everything that happened along the way. So to give his extemporaneous observations of what what he's seeing there and what is happening and how it fits in to her story and then the way they edit it together, I think kind of a, a master class in audio storytelling. No, I agree. And I really applaud Josh's wherewithal in knowing in the moment that he might use that tape later. That is a hard thing to do, especially when you're looking at something that's difficult and you're in a difficult situation. And Toby, that episode was incredibly difficult. Like he was in a place that none of us would want to go, right? Yeah. I mean, the, the description of the torture prison when he's going through, which used to be a, a soccer or football for everybody who's not American stadium, uh, it's harrowing. You know, he talks about a cage that can be lowered into the water and, you know, his suspicion that there are bodies probably underwater. So there's a sort of shaft in the ground and it's full of water and there's a rusty cage in it. So I'm guessing people were lowered into the water, yeah? In the cage. So there's probably bodies in there, maybe. Yeah. There are. Okay, great. And uh, going to these cells where there's blood smears and bloody handprints. And then the guide, whose name I'm spacing. um, There's Ahmed and Mustafa. Mustafa was the journalist. Ahmed was... And Ahmed was a guy who'd been there before, right? Yes, that's him. The I want my book back guy. Yes. Oh, my God. and, And him talking about having 47 people in this small cell. I mean, it's just... I. It's pretty incredible. Like, I assume they probably have uh, camera footage of it, too, if you watch the TV show. But it's one of those things where I feel like the audio is so powerful. The audio is uh, visual in a ju- weird just way, Just trying right? to imagine, you know, what, what he's describing and sort of the emotion that's conveyed in his voice. So, yeah, it, it was... It was it's about as intense as that kind of thing gets, I think. Yeah, I mean, it's, it's it's cinematic, and it's kind of visual in a way that it's very hard to do in audio. Now, Laura, the angle of the podcast, which I'm not sure is really, I mean, it may have been the way he went into it. It may be what we're supposed to think it's about, but I'm, it's about so much more. But the angle of the podcast is about Sam's credibility and, you know, whether or not she is complicit, whether or not she's lying, whether or not it's some combination of the two, because both things can be true. She could be a person who knew what she was doing, but also be a victim. We know that. But she's also a very complicated character. And that comes out even more in the later episodes. What do 
you think of Sam in these later episodes of I'm Not a Monster? Well, you know, the, the one right after the last one we listened to where she's been arrested and we find out she's an FBI informant and find out that there was a lot more going on with her prior to going to Syria that leads you to believe she clearly knew that there was some sketchy stuff going on with her husband, more so than we were led to believe before. But I found myself flipping back and forth a lot. Like I was like, okay, she's not being truthful and this doesn't make sense. But then I'd flip over to the butt. If she was, you know, in an extremely abusive relationship, she wouldn't be acting how you might expect her to act uh, in terms of following this guy around the world and selling the stuff to generate cash and everything that she was doing. So I think it definitely let you make up your own mind because I felt like there was just so many inconsistencies in what she said. And he definitely followed up every single one that he was able to. And I think that also helps lead you toward, you know, making some sort of ultimate determination. But I still don't feel like I came away making that determination as strongly as I was hoping to, because I just felt like I don't really know when I can believe her and when I can't believe her. Like, I feel like a lot of the stuff that happened is true. I feel like a lot of the stuff that happened isn't true. Hmm. And I, I feel like that was my takeaway at the end of this. Kevin? Yeah, I don't know if Sam is an ISIS sympathizer, but she's shady AF, right? <laughs> um but I think, like Laura said, that there is enough truth in what she said that you could say the crimes that you suspect her of are not the crimes that she actually committed. We know that she did do the stuff where she got cash and gold and moved it to Hong Kong so that her husband and his brother could join ISIS. She did that before she went to Syria. Mm -hmm. So what happened in Syria? And she is lied to her friends and family about what she was doing. Yeah. There just seems to be... There doesn't... <laughs> I think Josh just went there trying to find out what the story is. And, he already, and even he said, like, it's hard to put it, her story in a box. But I think if he went there looking to indict her, he didn't do that. He didn't quite exonerate her either. But I just, there really wasn't any hard evidence that she was, you know, making her own suicide vests and things like that. So... She's no angel. She's definitely no angel. Well, I don't know. I mean, this is the thing. It's so complicated because we know what she did and we hear her try to explain the way the, the lies about mm -hmm. what she was doing at the time. There's one detail that I would love to ask Josh about. Maybe I will on Twitter. Maybe he'll put it in episode 11 because episode 11 is going to be the Q&A episode. And he's already said he's going to answer one of my questions. Mm -hmm. um, <laughs> I want to know if she is in Syria and she's basically a captive why she personally has gold to spend at the slave market and why she personally has gold to spend when it's time for them to get out. Because she describes a place where she has no possessions, own, owns nothing. Everything that she had was taken away from her. And yet she's still in that community has some sort of and currency. that money wall, uh, is it Musa? Yeah. While he was still alive? And then they're talking about after he died, she became... Yo, no, but remember when they went to the slave market and yeah. she was like, she said to him, like, that's my money. I want to buy that slave. It's yeah. my money. I mean, I just have questions as for how they work. Now, keep in mind, I also do believe she's a victim of abuse and that both things can be true. I, I don't think it's mm -hmm. one or the other. And I do think being a victim of abuse does play into everything that she did. Right. I do think it's more complicated yeah, than that. And like that prosecutor said, if it were not for Musa, would she have gone to Syria? No. Of course not. But did she also have responsibility for some of the things that she did there and, and 
before and after and whatnot, she does. If she had never met and married uh, Musa al-Hassani, I don't think that she would have ever done what she did. That said, I think she is personally responsible for her actions, and that's what we charge her with. So, Toby, one of the things that's interesting is Sam's family's attitude toward her. Can you talk about that a little bit? Yeah, well, I guess that's one of the things that struck me throughout this whole series, and it it continues on, is that the people who are closest to her are the ones who trust her the least and sort of assign her the most agency in this situation. I mean, I don't know if I have much more to say about it other than that, but it is kind of an interesting insight into her that, you know, really the people who know her best, it's easy for them to envision her doing things that put her kids in danger. Hmm. Like, even if they're not like 100% like she wanted to join ISIS and buy slaves and stuff like that. But the idea that, yeah, it's completely easy for me to see her dragging her kids into a war zone. That's a really hard thing for her and this story to kind of overcome. Yeah. Because there's not, there's not a whole lot of like character witnesses for her. Yeah. There's nobody who comes up and says, at the beginning, she was my best friend. No, at the and beginning, she these there great were. Things. At the beginning, she had a couple friends who said those kinds of things. Yeah, so there, the she's setup. nice, but she was unreliable. Yeah. And, and, you know, she kind of spurned them. And then there's, you know, there's some people in Syria who are like, she had she nice was, chickens. Yeah. Well, talk about that. <laughs> talk about that Syria trip. Because when he went to Syria and talked to the neighbors, he also didn't completely trust their side of things, right. right? And this was something I was trying to figure out exactly how what the logistics of this would be. But essentially, they go to a, a place where Sam told him to go, which is where she lived. And they actually, he had a picture of her there, I guess, or the kids there holding a cat. And so he shows up and like instantly there's a whole bunch of people ready to talk to him about her and talk about how great she is. But there's nobody else that he could talk to about it and get any more information. So he's like, I guess I I guess I'm out of here. But then he goes away thinking, you know, am I being manipulated? Like, is you know, am I being sent here because she knows what they're going to say, how she would let them know that he was coming or whatever. I mean, it just seems there's some logistics there that I didn't quite quite get, but you know, it, it kind of plays into this just sort of general distrust of her, which seems earned. Yeah. Again, mm. because there's nobody who's saying, no, you should trust her. Everybody who's close to her has that issue. Yeah. Laura, have we ever heard in any podcast ever the thoroughness of the fact checking, but still the continued existence of skepticism after fact checking? I mean, he walks through that torture prison, mm-hmm. sees the things she described, and still says, I don't know for sure that this is what she told me. He goes and talks to those people in that village in Syria who were her neighbors. And she's able to describe very accurately. He's able to see for himself. This is where that photo was taken. This is where that video was shot. And yet he's still skeptical. I don't know if we've ever seen an example of a journalist continue to be a journalist so thoroughly, even when it might be tempting to just be like, oh, yeah, that's true. You know what I'm talking about, Laura? Yeah, no. And I think that goes to what I was kind of talking about before, where it's like you're really left to make up your own mind because he's not coming out point blank, making a conclusion and telling you what his conclusion is. And he's always playing sort of that devil's advocate position. But I feel like this particular story is what has created that type of dynamic just because of her 
unreliability as a narrator. We might not have that same continued sense of questioning and skepticism and looking at all angles if we had somebody at the center of this that wasn't as... Um, unreliable. <laughs> unreliable. Yeah, I was trying to think of a different word besides unreliable. But, you know, if we had a different person at the center of the story, I don't think it would lend itself to that style of reporting. But I feel like her character is what drives that type of questioning, just because even when you confirm something, there's still the question of, well, this is, seems accurate. Like you hear the woman talking about hearing her tortured. You hear the guy talking about how he knows she's, um, you know, there was a woman named Um Yusuf who was tortured really bad in the prisons. But there might have been two women called Um Yusuf. And I'm sorry, I was like, okay. Two so American it, women. Two American, them, yeah. yeah. And um, so, so again, it's like just because of the nature of this story, I think it maybe calls for that level of skepticism and double checking. But also- Back to the beginning, you know, we had that other podcast, Caliphate, where we didn't have that same level of scrutiny, uh, obviously talking about ISIS as well. So I appreciate him going the extra step in this podcast. Oh, no, I do, too. And I appreciate him being transparent about why. Now, Kevin, in episode, I think it's episode nine, um, Josh talks to a couple of exes of Musa's mm-hmm. and is basically able to hear through multiple lenses. And he's actually gotten sourcing for this after the podcast came out. So this is extra the documentary. Like the podcast is now out. People are contacting him. And he hears from a couple of his exes who corroborate that he was abusive. He he would emotionally manipulative. He would ghost them. He would he was like love bombing and then doing all the things that abusers do. Do you think this adds weight to the narrative that Sam perhaps was for him, there's no other way to say this, like the perfect abuse victim, because not only did she stay with him, but then she was also willing to kind of go along with his manipulation. Does it add to that for you or does it do something else for you? I'm just curious to know your thoughts about that episode. I, I think what it shows is that it's true that Musa was a mean, manipulative person. And I think, you know, Amber is the name of the ex-wife. She says that, but also verifies that as Matthew. And we have to talk about Matthew soon. Oh, we're going to talk about that, yes. But because he said it, look, and he has nothing to gain or lose by why they were there, why they stayed, or or whatever. And he strikes me as a truth teller. So if he said that, yeah, you know, that he was a very dangerous guy um, and that uh, they were happy when he died, then, you know, I think... He isn't a convenient patsy for a terrorist mastermind widow, right? So I, I think that, that, you know, as far as that part of the story, that, you know, Musa uh, had it in him to be somebody that could threaten and manipulate his family in order to do things like that. I, so, yeah, that, that tracks. Toby, what are your thoughts on Musa after that episode and how he was characterized? Well, I mean, it's just another complicated part of a complicated story, I think. Um, you can see through the testimony of other people where he has a sort of charm and manipulation to maybe get somebody to do something that's not in their best interest. It seems like there's a big step between letting somebody back in after they've been gone for a couple of weeks and taking your family to Syria into a war zone. Yeah. Like that, that seems like there's, there's a, that's a big bridge. Um, but yeah, I mean, it, it does make it, it makes that dynamic seem a little more understandable, I guess. You know, and again, I think Matthew 
kind of brings this up too is that the, you know it seems like there's kind of two musas if not three where he's he's a very charming sort of gregarious guy who has this other side to him which becomes like the dominant side once they get to syria where he's this powerful bad guy that people are afraid of uh and with good reason so, Laura, I want to talk about the construction of this podcast overall, because since we're reviewing the later episodes, we actually kind of are talking about the series as a whole now. I haven't for a very, very long time heard a podcast where every single episode had such a strong ending that I found myself like really dying to hear the next one. I think the ending of episode nine is one of the best examples of a cliffhanger in podcasting that I have ever heard. In the distance, I hear the sound of a motorboat. It's one coming to collect me. And on the boat with him is the boy I set out to find. Guys, this is so cool. Matthew. Laura, what did you think at the end of episode nine when after all of this, after examining this whole story and hearing about it from every angle, we hear that bit of tape where once again, Juan has somehow gotten Josh to follow a series of coordinates. <laughs> <laughs> but then at the, They can't just go to McDonald's, no, and then at right? The, the very end, we understand what it is that this last episode is going to be about. What did you think of that setup? And then do you think episode 10 delivered on that setup? Yeah, I, you know, I think the setup was I, I waited to listen to all these. So I was able to go right into episode 10. Same. I think if, <laughs> if if I had had to wait a week, I would have been like, ah, oh, because I'm listening. I'm like, oh, my gosh. Now we're going to hear from this child, this boy who really is at the center of this, who really I mean, there are obviously victims in all fronts. But, you know, this kid, when I look at this whole series, I feel like he was really the biggest victim you know, he's a child in the position he was put in. But now we're going to hear from him. And then again, like the last time, we're out in the woods and there's like all this great background noise. But not only do we hear from him, but just again, the thoroughness of the reporting from Josh, we hear. And this was this was kind of like the how the sausage is made, but I appreciated it in this case. What lengths he went to to educate himself before speaking to a child who had been such a victim of such serious trauma. The fact that everybody involved in this child's life was on board with this and that he was going in, even though he's a journalist and he's asking questions really from a place of compassion and trying to get some understanding and, and tell Matthew's story. It was just really in terms of interviews that we have heard with children and young people that have been victims, it was really just so well done. But also, I was kind of astounded that Matthew sounded as mature and articulate as he did. I mean, I have to wonder, it sounds like he's clearly had a lot of therapy and he's had some time to process, but you have to wonder when somebody goes through something like that, what are the lasting effects? And you hear him and you're like, well, he sounds good. And he says that little bit at the end where he talks about, like, I'm okay now. And if I can get through this, you can get through anything or something. What would you like people to understand about what you lived through? That you can pull through. That's really it. Like, no matter how bad the situation is, we'll always get through it. It all happened and it's done. It's all behind me now. I did find myself wondering, is he really okay? 
I, I don't know if anyone else felt like yeah, that. Yeah, no, well, he has yeah. this, as Josh explains, he has this legacy on the internet that will haunt him forever, even if he is okay, right? That still exists. And I just want to underline something you said, Laura. Other podcasters have done what Josh did here and said, before I did this interview, I consulted with X, Y, and Z. But when I've heard it in other podcasts, it's been, for lack of a better term, sometimes a little bit virtue signally. And I didn't feel that way here. Like it was actually contextually important to hear why it was that Juan wanted his son to be able to tell his story and why it was important that Josh didn't ask him certain questions. Because as an audience member, you want to know. So, Matthew, did your mom get taken away and sent to a torture prison for a while? So, Matthew, like the questions you would just ask an adult subject I needed to know as a listener why he didn't just ask Matthew those questions since Matthew was there. Um, And it really worked. Kevin, what did you think of this kid and and the way that Josh handled that? Yeah, I mean, I'm like Laura. I keep asking myself, is he okay? I mean, he speaks so calmly and matter-of-factly, talking about everything. About Yeah, we just get, get blown up. At least it'll be over. That... Yeah, you know, you wonder. You just have to wonder. Like, is he saying this because he's so well adjusted, or is he? Is this sort of a defense mechanism that he's just uh, saying it without processing any of it? It's it's hard to say. You know, especially that he'd been through a lot at a very young age. So I don't know. I just I thought I thought that the whole episode was great. You know, to get to talk to him and hear his side of it. And also when they got to go see the uh, the other children and Rick, I think, is the name of the yeah the father, the father We've got Rick's embroidered on all of his shirts. So I should I should obviously remember who that is. Um, you know, I just thought it was a great look. I think that like episode nine is the climax of the podcast and episode 10 is like the epilogue. The denouement. You know, it's going to wrap everything up. And so, you know, usually if you can spend an hour doing that, that's like. It's like, it's too much. It's like the story is over. But the story wasn't over. And and I thought that this was a good use of that time. And yeah, you know, I just, uh, I I really couldn't get enough. Do you notice the sensitivity that the younger kids weren't on tape at all in any of the podcast? He references them driving up on the swing set. He references them driving away. They're never on tape. Because he knows it's like not okay to put a five-year-old's voice on tape that didn't consent. I just I notice details like that, and I believe that they're intentional. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm just curious, Toby. What were your thoughts about this? Is the most I think. I don't necessarily agree that it's not the climax. I actually I've come to think that this is what the podcast is actually about. But Toby, what did you think of the Matthew interview and just the way this podcast wrapped up? I'll give you my quick reaction. Then I've got actually got a question for you, sure. maybe, yeah. which is so. Yeah, it was interesting and I and I think it was important to hear like if they could to get to get Matthew to talk about his experience. I don't know how he can be okay. I I think there's just been so much trauma that you know, I I think he can present himself probably in in situations, but I don't know how anybody goes through that much trauma and doesn't have effects of it. So it was it was good. I mean, I think there needed to be some closure uh after listening to all this as to what's actually going on with the kids, you know, knowing that their mother's in jail for six and a half, prison for six and a half years. And it would have been weird not to know. Yeah. Right. Yeah. So the question I had at the end of all this was looking back at it, what are the stakes here? Like, what are the stakes of this whole podcast? Cause I was thinking, you know, the, 
he went to Syria. He did all this stuff, an incredible amount of journalism. In some ways, it seems like it's very pure storytelling. But what exactly, what are the stakes that made it necessary to go to the lengths that he did to tell this story? My opinion is that there is sort of an accepted narrative about terrorism and good guys and bad guys. I mean, it's just something we accept. We sort of, you know, have all this media about the caliphate and about and if you look at movies and the way that like Islamic terrorism is portrayed and you look at Americans who've been complicit with ISIS and people in Britain who've been, you know, taken away and like indoctrinated to ISIS. I think the stakes are that it is not the story that, for instance, the U.S. government wants us to think like you're a terrorist and you're not a terrorist. It's more complicated and it has more victims than the conventional narrative would have us know about. I mean, to me, that's why the kids are so important, because the ripple effects of this, you know, not unlike the conversation happening around like the child separation policy at the border, you can call it a policy that happened in a small period of time. But like any thinking person knows that in 10, 15, 20, 30 years, you're going to have a whole generation of children who have very good reason to be like incredibly disillusioned and angry at the government of the United States, right? To me, that's what this is. It's just a, a portrait, but also an exploration of this not being a black and white story that you can just make a movie out of and call it a day. I mean, that's what it is to me. What do you think of that answer, Toby? Yeah. It's interesting because he doesn't feel like I'm not, it's not really necessarily a criticism, but it is interesting that he, he there, there's no point at which there's any sort of statement of the importance yeah. of what's going on. It's just, this is what I'm doing. Like there's some interesting, like it'd be interesting to play this for a class and have a discussion around the question that the judge is considering that they talk about, which is... How do you judge Sam? Do you judge her by her actions or do you judge her by her intentions? Right. Which I think is a, is a you know, that's like sort of a universal sort of philosophical question, which to me seemed like a lot of what this was about. And more so than other podcasts I think we've listened to, I think it's kind of left to you a little bit to try and figure out what the importance of, of all this looking into is beyond just it being like a, a very compelling story well told, but a hell of a lot of effort went into it. Listen, it was inside of you all along. That's what every story is supposed to be. Right? <laughs> <laughs> all right. Well, I think we should do what we do. Let's let our listeners know if they haven't yet. Uh, if you're listening to this podcast and you haven't yet, like, Call me and I will smack you in the face. If you haven't yet checked out I'm Not a Monster, what do we think of the finale of it? And what do we think of the series overall? Thumbs up or thumbs down? Is it worth a listen? Laura Bricker, what do you think? This is a big thumbs up. This was, you know, tremendous reporting, really captivating storytelling, and getting to the heart of the issue about a child who was a victim at the center of all of this that was going with ISIS and his parents. And um, as an added bonus, apparently Josh Baker is a cat person because yeah. <laughs> um, I need to get some more details on this. He was trying to hide his cat's toys on a Zoom interview. And I was like, oh, I couldn't love this podcast anymore now. So um, aside from that, though, it's a really it's just really well done. Big thumbs up. 
Terry Ball, what about you? Thumbs up or thumbs down for the totality of I'm Not a Monster? For the totality, huh? Um, it, it's really kind of an incredible piece of work, I think. There's so many aspects to it, which are kind of unique and sort of uniquely well done. Um, and the journalism is pretty impeccable. Yeah, I mean, it's I, it's a huge thumbs up. I, I guess I still have sort of thoughts that I'm trying to get through about what I think about it Isn't a little bit. Isn't that good, bit. though? Isn't that like what a great piece of media is supposed to do? You're supposed to still be thinking about it once it's over? Oh, yeah. Yeah. No, it's, it's definitely not one of those things where you're done with the last episode. And you're like, oh, OK, well, I wonder what's on TV now. <laughs> uh, so, yeah, no, it's 100 percent like like if you listen to us and like like stuff that we like, you're, you're going to like this. <laughs> Kevin Flynn. Yeah, I gave it a thumbs up before and I'm sticking with the thumbs up on the finish. I think it's it reminds me um, of the best part of cereal, which is that in the end, it's not Sam's story, it's Josh's story, and he tells it very well. You know, I was thinking about Toby's question of, you know, what are the stakes, or kind of asking, like, why go to these lengths to tell the story? And we see this sometimes, and it's like the artist is, you know, obsessed with the story, and it ends up being about the artist's obsession, and it doesn't end up being about the story that they're obsessed about. And I'm not, I'm not saying that Josh is obsessed, but he got a great story and he wanted to know. And so he tells us. He doesn't talk an awful lot about how he's, you know, missing sleep and, you losing know, losing weight, apparently. Losing weight. Well, you know, traveling to Syria and all the other stuff is probably going to do that. But uh, he tells a, a really fantastic story, tells it well, goes to incredible lengths to, to fact check. And in the end, um, while we may not have all of the answers, he certainly delivered everything that you could want from a podcast. So a very high thumbs up. Yeah, same for me. I think this podcast is a real achievement for a couple of reasons. Um, there is a rare thing in journalism that I think Madeline Barron captures in In the Dark and Josh Baker captures here which is, I disagree with you, Kevin, that this is Josh's story. I think the story is what it is, but Josh isn't afraid to be in the story, not not like a subject of the story, but to show us who he is while reporting the story. And it is so incredibly clear that he is kind and smart and sensitive and wants to get it right more than he wants it to be, quote, good. And that is like an incredibly rare quality, not just in journalism, but especially in podcasting that right now is so much about like how I sound in this, how I come off in this. You know, we're going to talk about something in the after show that's related to this about sort of like the artifice of like being a star in the medium. He is doing incredible journalism here and in not making himself the star of it. He makes himself the star of it. And that is rare. And the only other time I've really heard it on this show uh, on podcasts we've listened to is I, th I really think in the dark. Madeline Barron centers herself in it unintentionally in a way that makes you care so much more. So I just think it's a rare piece of work. You can disagree with me, Kevin. Oh, I'm just saying about in the, in the dark. I think Madeline is not a presence. Well, I think she is. I think she well, is. That's my experience of it. Okay, okay, okay. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, I think he is, um, he's centered it in a way that makes it better. And I felt like I got to know him through the process. Side note, I've gotten to know him a little bit because we reviewed it and we've stayed in touch. And I know that he cares that much. Like, he cares about what we think. And you can hear that in a way that is not bad. It is all good. So all I want, please, if you have not listened, 
Listen to it. It is worth it. You're going to say it's one of the best podcasts of the year. I guarantee it. Huge thumbs up for me. Kevin, here we are in the business section of the podcast. Business time. What have we got going on? Well, coming up on Patreon, we have the Crime Writers on After Show in your feeds right now. What's that about, Kevin? I think we're going to be talking about uh, another podcast, Professional Brouhaha. We're going to be talking about the Reply All scandal on our After Show. Mm. Uh, I want you guys to ask me questions. I have some tea to spill and also some thoughts. And basically what it means when a very important show has a misstep that's also very important. So, Kevin, what else is on our Patreon? Uh, well, it looks like uh, Laura wants to talk about strippers again. Yeah. <laughs> Paint strippers? Did you buy, like, a tool I for don't that know, on she TV? Just, she just sent me something, and it said, after Keep show. the strippers coming. People love us talking oh about strippers. God. By the way, can yeah. we just we, give a thumbs up to our fan, Jamie, who has, like, become the best evangelist for our after show, telling people that it's, like, raunchy and fun. I mean, yeah, guys. <laughs> I didn't realize how horny our audience was. <laughs> uh, we have a great Merry With podcast that's out right now. We did this one live, and we had people that came on the show, and they asked questions, and other folks came on and helped answer some of them. And so we've got a, a, a wide variety of topics covered, including... Sarah, who had guilt over distancing from a toxic parent. Don't feel guilty about that, Sarah. Later this week, Toby Ball's Deep Dive Book Club podcast is out with his look at The Five. It's a story about the uh, five women murdered by Jack the Ripper. And his guests are Lauren Bright Pacheco and Claire Clark. Nice. And Toby Ball, of course. So. Toby Ball is always the the, the the supreme guest on Toby Ball's Deep Dive Book Club podcast. A guest on my own show. And this is also your last chance to uh, sign up a Patreon for a year membership. If you do it by March 1st, you'll get a phone call from one of the four of us nice. thanking you for doing that. You can actually get a year subscription to Patreon anytime you like or keep it at monthly or whatever, but if you do it by March 1st, then uh, we will take the time to uh, call. We've got a, we're have got we getting through our backlog, but we promise we will get to you. Are you putting a deadline on this because you're tired of making phone calls being your full-time job? It's, it's, it's a problem. <laughs> <laughs> All right, now, Kevin, we are going to be recording another Mary with podcast soon, right? Yes. Okay, I've been seeing that on the schedule. I'm like, I guess we're doing that again. Yeah, I getting, love it. I got a really great question. Too. I really love Mary with Podcast. All right. Thank you for supporting us on Patreon. Those of you who do, go to patreon.com slash partners in crime media. And Kevin, before we wrap up the business section, do we have any Patreon patron saints of the week? Our Patreon patron saints are Linnea Motter and Susan Hall. Bless you. Oh, Susan is one of my Sue's one of my favorites. Really? Yeah, she's in the Brichter scale group. Mm-hmm. Isn't it so funny that we have like fa- like I feel like I have favorites, but then I realize like five hundred of them. But people we know like know mm-hmm. them by name. Yeah, I'm so glad. It makes me so gratified. Well, Sue's got little dogs that go to the dog park and makes uh, margaritas. So I mean, we have a lot in common. <laughs> Kevin, should I fade that music out now? Fade it out. Moving on. We never saw her leave. And we communicated that to our peers, that we felt that she's still here somewhere. She never left the hotel. 
In 2003, 21-year-old Canadian tourist Elisa Lamb disappeared from the downtown Los Angeles hotel where she was staying. Surveillance video of her on an elevator seeming to hide from someone was a critical clue for police, but also the source of wild speculation among online crime fans. I think one of the employees brought her to the roof. I think she was coerced and led up. Who knows? Maybe the hotel just didn't want to take blame and just covered it up. It was an inside job. They were trying to protect someone. This is a huge cover-up by the hotel. Adding to the mystery was the long, dark history of the Cecil Hotel. Did this Skid Row tourist trap with a reputation for drugs, murder, and suicide play a role in Lamb's disappearance? This story is part of a larger narrative that goes on and on and on, and it has been for the last 75 years. Netflix's four-part crime scene, The Vanishing at the Cecil Hotel, chronicles the Elisa Lamb case. Is it homicide or an accident? The series also explores the history of the notorious establishment, as well as the web sleuths whose fascination with the case begat corruption allegations, false accusations, and conspiracy theories. Now, spoiler alert, we are going to be talking about plot points for crime scene, The Vanishing at the Cecil Hotel. So if you want to remain spoiler free, go to the estimated time code in our show notes for our thumbs up or thumbs down review. So, Kevin, what do you think of this concept of this new series from Netflix? There is going to be more seasons of it yeah. that takes a true crime story and focuses it around a particular place. Well, I mean, I think you need a hook um, that's different each time. Otherwise, you know, if you look at, uh, you know, a certain cable network, it's always, you know, Deadly this and, you know, so wives so with, with knives, with knives and, <laughs> right? It's like a Chinese menu, right? It's one from A and one from B and you put it together and... A uh, bento box of true crime. A bento box of true crime. <laughs> so to have have a unique perspective on something or a, a unique take, I think, is important. So, yeah, uh, the idea that this is supposed to, you know, focus around a particular place, but if you watch it, you kind of wonder, is that what this is about? Right. Is this about... The Cecil Hotel? Is this about the Elisa Lamb case? Is this about the web sleuths that were getting involved in this? I, I don't know what this was. Hmm. Now, Laura, I want to talk about the Cecil Hotel itself for a minute because we are given kind of an overview of the policies that ended up marginalizing homeless people in Los Angeles to Skid Row, a famous, uh, very large homeless encampment right in downtown L.A. And this historic, very beautiful hotel just happens to be sitting there. And then over decades and decades, a lot of bad things happen there and it becomes the thing of legend. Like, I remember even in the podcast Tannis, um, the Cecil Hotel was the subject of one of their like side trips. Wasn't Tannis? Yeah, lore <laughs> episodes. You know how they used to be like, okay, let me let me tell you this creepy story about a thing that happened yeah. on the West Coast. Like the Cecil Hotel yeah. was one of them. Take for example the Cecil Hotel. Built in the twenties, the Cecil fell hard during the Great Depression and never really recovered. Several notorious Los Angeles murders happened at or are reportedly connected to the hotel. What was the doctor's name? Oh, uh, that was from Black Tapes. It was Dr. Strange. Oh, never mind. <laughs> so, different podcast. <laughs> so, Laura, what do you think of just the Cecil Hotel as a character? Is it a place you would ever stay? Um, it's not a place I would ever stay, Rebecca. 
But it reminds me of a place I've been. Um, so right away when we started this, it you know, when I was doing defense work and I was working as a private investigator, there was a hotel like this. And I used to always be like, why is it called a hotel? Because it clearly wasn't a hotel. It was a place. Um, they had like a shared kitchen, shared bathrooms, and it had a sign out front that said like rooms for what, a night. Was this the Cadillac lifetime. Motel yes. <laughs> on Chestnut Street at Chestnut and, and Bridge Street? Yeah, and it was a similar kind of, it was. Have you been there, Kevin? It's on the northwest corner of Chestnut and Bridge Street. Yes, Cadillac, mm-hmm. the Cadillac Motel. Rooms, wow. for, rooms for a night or a lifetime. A lifetime. And, yes. I, and it was the same sort of setup in a way as this place because, you know, you would have people that had gotten out of jail or prison and they couldn't find housing anywhere else. They couldn't afford housing anywhere else. And this is where they were staying. And, you know, it was the type of place that I always had this like big, like six foot six male investigator go with me in a pair if I went in (laughs) type place. And also where I had one of my most exciting moments as a defense investigator, where I was in uh, this woman interviewing somebody that was a witness in a case. And they took me in their little room and locked the door. (laughs) They said, you can't be too careful around this place. And I said, okay, like, tell me what's going on. And I get the whole story. And then I'm getting ready to leave. And she says, you know, I got my own problems. And I said, Oh, like what? She says, "Well, I'm a paranoid schizophrenic with homicidal tendencies," and I'm like, "Oh, oh. God!" And I'm okay. locked in the Cadillac Motel. That story is way more interesting than this documentary. <laughs> That's very true. It is. So when I saw the Cecil Hotel, I was like, immediately knew I could understand the makeup of this place. Now, the, there is sort of a concierge, for lack of a better word, to introduce us to the different elements of what the Cecil Hotel is all about. And that's the hotel manager, former hotel manager, Amy, who was my favorite character in this whole thing. Quite literally a concierge. Yes, except for, she was a manager, except for Josh Dean, who we know a little bit and I really like. But um, the hotel manager kind of talks about the history of the hotel, how it sort of had its decline, how they built this weird hotel inside the hotel to attract like tourists who wanted a low cost place to stay. The maintenance manager, he walked me through the entire hotel along the way, you know, he would just point and say, someone died here, someone died there. Suicides, overdoses, murders. At one point, I think I just asked him, is there a room here that like, maybe somebody hasn't died in? I never got used to that. Toby, do you think the hotel itself, because this thing is supposed to be about a crime scene, do you think the hotel got enough due in this documentary? Uh, I think it got way too much due. Um, I don't know. I mean, this is like one of the weird things I couldn't quite figure out about this documentary is that they do give sort of, you know, there are people who talk about it like it's like The Shining, like, oh, the hotel's evil and, you know, the hotel has some kind of influence on the way people do things, which to me just completely loses me. Like, I don't know. Like, once you put that in there, I don't know how I'm supposed to take the rest of it very seriously. I've got a lot of problems with this with this documentary. And that was one of them. But I think if you're really, if the idea was it's about the Cecil Hotel and maybe you want to use Elisa Lamb as like a way into that subject, I I, I just think there, there you have to do a lot of contextual stuff and they tried to do mm. a little bit, but it was basically just like very, very brief contextual stuff about Skid Row and and a little bit about how that changed and a little bit about how in different decades that Cecil had these different problems. But if that's really the, the the story you're telling, you need you need to give a lot more 
of that kind of stuff about why was LA changing? Why was the Cecil like the one place or maybe one of many places, but the most notorious place where people came? Instead, it's just like, yeah, Richard Ramirez, he was there. And, you know, what is it about it that would attract a person like Richard Ramirez? And I think it was pretty clearly it's cheap, you know. And there's a lot of potential victims there, probably. Walk in and out. Nobody's going to notice who you are. So Exactly. Exactly. Now, Kevin, um, the Elisa Lamb case, were you familiar with this case at all? I hadn't filed it. I remember it. Yeah. Yeah. So the two, the two details I very distinctly remember, I remember hearing about it twice in the same week. Once when I was taking my Mandarin uh, Chinese class with my Chinese professor who showed us the Elisa Lam video because apparently in China it went mega viral. Mm-hmm. Everyone was sure it was a ghost video because like the ghost lore is like very like part of the woven of the fabric of Chinese culture. And then I also heard at the same time, and I didn't initially realize it was the same story about those tourists who were drinking the water and brushing their teeth with the water, yeah. showering in the uh. water from the water thing. Now, I know we're laughing because it is just so unbelievably uh. gruesome and difficult to think about. But, I mean, there's a reason why people are fascinated by this case. I mean, it does, if you're going to have a case that people are interested in on the internet, you can understand why it was this one, right? Yeah, I mean, it does have some of those elements. Uh, certainly, you had, when it when it became news, uh, she was still missing. Mm. So... There's that mystery to it there. And then the video from the elevator, which I guess we could talk about for seven hours because a lot of people did. Yeah. Seven. That seems like a very short period of time for some of these people. <laughs> well, it seems like it was the kind of thing that it had a lot of the elements of, of being a, a big news story. But obviously, the closer you look at it, it isn't a crime. Yeah. Right. It's a, it's a very tragic thing. But it was so very obvious that this woman was not hiding from a killer in the elevator like that, you know, scrunching up that she was having some sort of mental health crisis or perhaps that she was on drugs. That wasn't what it was. But it certainly it certainly appeared more like that than there was somebody stalking her. Because think about it. If somebody was really stalking her, wouldn't they just go in the elevator and get her? You think. You know, but um, but yeah, but people were like, oh, that's what that is. And they went crazy with it and i tell you i hated every fucking person that i saw (laughs) in this documentary after that point right now i'm gonna let everybody weigh in on the web sluice and then i'm gonna tell you something about them that might surprise you well i'm gonna start with toby because toby you sent me a note that was interesting (laughs) that if this elevator video hadn't been released in the way that it was released that this may not have happened that there wouldn't have been this like phalanx of like dozens and dozens of people who created whole youtube channels around this case so can you just talk about the web sleuths and talk about the decision to release that video the thing about the video to me at least is it was revealing to hear that it was slowed down because i think what was kind of weird about the video is that it seemed kind of dreamlike because mm-hmm. you know there there's sort of this disconnect between the speed of her movements and what seemed to be her state of mind i i just kind of feel like that it was that like if you turn yeah. it at normal speed it would have just looked like a panicking woman and it wouldn't have wouldn't have had the same kind of weird effect that it had on people that being said, you know, I, I feel like the real missed opportunity in this show, and I, re- and I realized, I, well, I guess I didn't realize until you just said it, but the, the idea is it's supposed to focus on the setting. But like the one thing <laughs> the that's- title, uh, The title didn't tip you off, Toby? Crime scene? I don't know. I wasn't paying attention. <laughs> yeah. um, but the- uh, Strange Arrivals, by the way, is just about normal arrivals. Just FYI. <laughs> that's right. Yeah. It could be anything. Um, that, to me, was what was interesting- Right. Or could have been interesting. So you have all these people who are so obsessed with this one case 
but you don't get anything about them. Like they're literally all you get is what they're, as it turns out to be completely ridiculously wrong takes on this case are. They found it was an accident. Is it though? This can't be, this can't be. I have spent hours and hours investigating this and I completely disagree with the coroner. It just doesn't make sense. So you don't have any sense of what it is about them that either allows them or compels them or whatever to spend all this time. And in some points, like I think serious sort of emotional energy on this case, Mm. but, but that, that seems of no interest whatsoever. It's more look at all these people and look at what their theories were, uh, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And then in the end, like they just kind of get left off the hook. Like there's a few people like, Oh, you know, knowing what I know now, but the reality is, is that you guys just went off on these crazy ass tangents because I think when you spend all that much time and you invest that much in something, the idea that, oh, well, maybe it's just an accident isn't very satisfying. So it's like, oh, it's got to be a cover up. You know, that whole thing about the date when they showed the date, I was like, what are you talking about? There's like three days difference. It says the 18th and the 18th. And then when they go in, it's like, oh, you could you could possibly intentionally misinterpret that one as the 15th if you, you know. So I, I don't, the, the whole thing is seemed like a big missed opportunity and it should have been a different focus, but then it wouldn't be called a crime scene. So I mean, there you go. I mean, con- contrast that with Don't Fuck With Cats, which had a similar mm-hmm. storyline of web sleuths, but we did get into the minds of those web sleuths and why they did it. You know, I think about someone they like... They also helped the case. Yes, I also think about somebody like Rebecca Heath, a genius web sleuth who helped uh, solve the identities of the Bearbrook victims, who is, you know, putting that energy forward to help and, you know, for... for but yes, those, were, those motivations were not explored. Uh, Laura, I'm going to let you on the web sleuths and I'm going to tell you guys something about them. So I I think that the way that the web sleuths were portrayed in this documentary was, I I don't know if it was the way that it was edited and the way that it was done. It came across in a way that there was, it it seemed like a pack mentality. Like there was just so many people working on the same case and they were like feeding off of each other. And I felt like, you know, I'm sure that people had good intentions, but there was also sort of this like sense of entitlement that they didn't really understand how police records work and how investigations work. And they're like, well, we want the autopsy. Well, we want the police reports. And I'm like, okay, I've I'm worked as a journalist. That. I've worked as a private investigator. Just because you're interested, they're not going to give you <laughs> the police reports. Like, That's right. Good, good luck. It um, might be illegal, actually. It's illegal yeah. in a lot of places for police to give out material about cases. Yeah. yeah, especially in cases that are pending or in cases, you know, that they haven't resolved or if there's a reason not to release it. So then because they wouldn't give out the police reports, that was like a big conspiracy. And the autopsy wasn't public. And that was a big conspiracy. And I was like, oh, my gosh. So it was frustrating because, you know, then at the end, we have the one guy who's like, yeah. I, in hindsight, I probably shouldn't have done that. But I feel like like the lead up was just so. And then we also had people, web sleuths, speculating on bipolar and mental illness. And I felt like, you know, I've heard a lot um, from people that have watched this, um, you know, a- including some people that that do have bipolar, that they felt like that was not done in a way because they didn't really understand that mental illness. And so speculating on that was actually kind of harmful. Hmm. Uh, so it's, it's you know, we have seen a lot of other cases where we've had web sleuths. And I'm not saying that there's not a role 
for that type of person to play. But here, we just saw so many of them at the same time in this sort of like, I mean, and I get it. Like, I love a conspiracy more than anybody here. I mean, nope, not more than me. <laughs> I like, 100% I like, not more I'm than like, me. I'm like, oh, the whatever it was, was her name spelled backwards and the bookstore oh, was from That was weird. Oh, we'll, yeah. we'll, just, we'll talk about the weird coincidences okay. yeah. in a sec. So, I mean, but some of it was just like, I'm like, oh my good God. Like, I just, I couldn't do it. But I think that's part, one of the problems with not being a little bit more interested in these web sleuths is that all you've got from them is these sort of misguided conjectures, right? Yes. So there's no way that you can feel anything about them because you don't know anything else about their lives. All you know is about this one little thing. So there's no there's no reason to be sympathetic or to try to understand like where they're coming from, where these do, where they're doing these things. And I'm sure that they would probably feel that way when they see this thing. They're just like, oh shit, I look like an idiot. When in fact, you know, I may have had. I'm sure that they, they there was there was more to at least some of their stories than, than what came out. And I think Rebecca knows. I something. do. I do. Yeah. I know something. Um, and Kevin, I'm going to tell you, and you can react. Mm-hmm. So I interviewed the director of this, Joe Berlinger, for the Netflix podcast I host. And what's that called? Uh, you can't make this up. Right. It's very good. People seem to like it. You should check it out. Anyway, um, he wanted to respond to this because I actually asked him the question. You know, you you spend a lot of time kind of taking down these web sleuths. And he was like, what are you talking about? Because that was the way I also first saw it. It turns out none of these web sleuths that are in this did any of the harmful things that they describe happening. So they weren't the bad web sleuths who threatened and bullied people online. They weren't the web sleuths who that musician Morbid, who um, was almost driven to, you know, harm himself. They were not those ones. Okay. And, that, and to me, that was not clear when I was watching. Then, that wasn't clear at all. Then that's the fault of the editor, because the way that was edited, it certainly left that impression. Yep. So I don't know why they would be surprised that that's wh- how people took it. But plus, you know, that we see all these clips of like the same people over and over again saying things like, well, could it have been aliens or could it have been, you know, Sasquatch? And then, it was an aliens. It was an aliens, says Toby. Toby, are you sure? I'm pretty sure. <laughs> All these things. And like, I'm throwing popcorn at the screen the whole time. Mm. And then at the last episode, when, you know, some of the, I had to get closure, you know, I just wanted to say, you know, eat a fucking dick. I, yeah, I'm wow, sorry. That's I just, pretty intense. It was pretty intense. That was my reaction. <laughs> you had strong feelings. What can I say, America? Yes. When they got around to the part where they kind of explained, yeah, the, the I guess it's, you know, note, web sleuths accept the truth they go they start playing clips from the web series from the same people we've seen Mm. dressed in the same clothes saying so that's why it was just an accident so this is so it seems like what we were seeing clips from was were people sort of doing a summary of the case yes and doing all the hypothetical stuff talking through well one of the theories was a right but you only hear a right and and we've we've done that we've been in that chair so we know how that works right right right. so it leaves the impression that they are going along saying a and then b right there it's it's the way it's edited is is a distortion if that is the case then i think it did a real disservice to this this show but i do want to ask all of you about the very many weird coincidences in this case that you know deserve i don't want to say deserve but i think at least in somewhat explain like some people's 
I don't want to say it, I mean, it never explains obsession, but some people's interest. I mean, certainly the whole thing with the vaccine, uh, with her name spelled backwards. This outbreak of tuberculosis happened only a matter of days after her body was found in the water tank. And then you have this really bizarre twist in that a test that you give someone to detect tuberculosis is called a lamb ELISA test. It is Elisa Lamb, just with the two words reversed. The fact that she's named the same as the tuberculosis test, it just kind of itches in my brain a little bit and makes me wonder if there's any connection. Toby, you have to admit, I know you don't believe in, like, crazy things, but you have to admit <laughs> the coincidences in this are very strange, are they not? The Lamb Elisa TB test is super weird. <laughs> Yeah. Just, just <laughs> Thank no, you. There, there's oh my no. God. Toby yeah. agrees that something's weird. I that, can't that's believe no, it. <laughs> there's no two ways about that. And that was like, yeah. like that's definitely worth a few days of like trying to figure it out. I assume that if you spent a little bit of time on Google, you would find out why it was called that. And it's probably mm. not because they're sneaking in a secret Canadian to spread TB to the homeless people <laughs> on Skid Row to knock down their population. That to me is like kind of is not sort of an intuitive leap to make from that piece of information. Yeah. But it is generally weird. Laura, do you think the coincidences are weird? Oh, yeah. Oh, that's the type of thing I totally get into. And I'm like, um, <laughs> I can see how if I was seeing this kind of, okay, this is this is creepy. I would have been like, what does it mean? Why is it happening? This isn't a coincidence. I definitely would have been sucked into that if I was in the midst of that when it was unfolding. Kevin Flynn, weird or not? Yeah, there's synchronicities. Oh, you and I, by the way. Many miles away. Can I, can, I just, can I just clear up one thing? Yeah. <laughs> that was really good. Thank you. Your little police impression there, your sting impression. So um, I want to clear up one thing that you and I, from the very beginning of the documentary, like knew was true. Yeah. For some reason, people thought couldn't be true. The thing with the hinge on the door at the top of the water yeah. tank, I, I think, and I think you agree, it totally makes sense that it would be closed because she wouldn't have been able to open it all the way to begin with. She would have opened it partway, gone in, and it would have just closed. It depends if it had a hinge. And we kept yeah. looking at these drone shots. And by the way, visually, this was a really boring documentary. It's this drone up and down. Listen, and it was made during a pandemic. I know. Forgive, but please forgive them. <laughs> uh, forgive them, but still visually, it's it's very dull. You could have done like the the shining, like steady cam through the halls and stuff. At least, I mean, yeah. Look, if the hatch was, and I guess they said the hatch was, in the end, was open. If it was on a hinge that flips like this, and like, well, how, how, yeah, I mean, you can't get in and close it this way, but you probably got in, opening it halfway and sliding in, and it slams down right, on you. Right. I mean, that's- yeah. Not I'm a just, huge mystery. Occam's razor on a lot of this stuff. Yeah. Well, I think we should do what we do. Let's let our listeners know, should they check out- Crime scene, the vanishing at the Cecil Hotel. Thumbs up or thumbs down? Laura Bricker, I'm going to start with you. What do you think? I'm going to go thumbs down. I think this could have been two episodes instead of four. And I just didn't find it that interesting, which is awful to say. I mean, I felt like it could have been interesting, but I feel like it was dragged out. And I feel like it didn't really know if it wanted to be a documentary about like what was there was like three things, you know, it could have been about. And it, it kind of went a little bit on each of them, but not really totally into all of them. So I just I just really didn't love it. And I feel like I was so angry about the web sleuth part, the way it was portrayed. And I understand that there was people in there that had good intentions, but the way it came across, I was just like, bah! although it did motivate my rage walking. So, I mean, mm. there is that. So if you want to rage walk, you could definitely watch this. Toby Ball, what about you? Thumbs up or thumbs down for Crime Scene, The Vanishing at the Cecil Hotel? Well, when we started this whole thing, I was definitely going to give it a thumbs down. Um, I, you know, it's like sometimes when you have three strands to a story, 
and they interrelate well and you tie them together and they sort of reinforce each other. That can be super effective when you've got three strands and they're just like dangling, like in parallel to each other. That didn't, that didn't work at all for me. Like if you're trying to talk about the history of that place, I mean, I, I get that that was something that's gotten some attention, but if it's really about the Cecil hotel, it just seems like there might have been something that was a little more indicative of the history behind it. We talked about the web sleuth stuff. What what really freaking sinks this for me completely to like a huge thumbs down from just kind of a thumbs down <laughs> oh, is wow. the fact oh. that the director was surprised that you thought that he was throwing those web sleuths <laughs> under the bus. I'm like, what? Did you watch it? Did you have anybody watch it before you released it? There's no other. I'm like, well, when you watch this documentary, you think they bullied this this Mexican death metal guy to <laughs> morbid, yeah, yeah, morbid. Yeah. I, it's, I don't know. It really it really serves them poorly. And if it was other people who were doing that stuff, you're certainly left with the impression it was them. So I, it, it's really surprising to me that this is made by the same guy who did Paradise Lost, which hmm. you know I think is you know one of the classics of the uh, tr- true crime documentary. So it's a, it's a big thumbs down. I, I've only, I dislike it more after this conversation. Wow. Kevin Flynn, what about you? <laughs> I think my dislike of this is like on par with Toby's, although I think I like it. I dislike it even more. Wow. Like that time I got rabies from that dog, how much <laughs> I hate that dog is about how much I hate this you documentary. I didn't. I'm just being <laughs> foolish. <laughs> Look, I'm I'm a thumbs down, you know, for much of the same reasons we've these guys have already talked about. But it's supposed to be one of three things or all three things. It didn't do a good job at any of them. I was really turned off by the toxic true crime community, not the nice true crime community that goes to podcast events and donates money to stuff. But these idiots running around a hotel with handy cams like in, in the elevator, pressing all the buttons like they're Sherlock Holmes. You know, and then like, oh, there is there something spooky inside this haunted house. There's that whole thing. And then the case, which was interesting. But, you know, there there was not enough legs on the the crime because it isn't it wasn't a crime to last four episodes. I just think this was a complete disaster. And wow. I and I want to I wow. want Netflix to give me my four hours back. I haven't oh, been this. Stop it. I haven't been this big a thumbs down in a long time. Well, uh, you might be surprised to hear then that I'm giving it a thumbs up. I'm really surprised. Well, here's why. The divorce will be on Wednesday, everybody. <laughs> here's why. You're welcome for, to come for cocktails after. Here's why. All right. It is not perfect, and there are there is some problematic stuff with the editing that I actually kind of believe might be tied to COVID and sort of the process that had to go into making this thing. But not an excuse. I like Josh Dean a lot. I freaking loved Amy, the hotel manager, so much. She reminded me of Kim from Better Call Saul, like hard yes for Amy. Like <laughs> I want to be friends with Amy. I want to know more about what her career has been like afterwards. And uh, I really liked the Morbid interview. I thought that was really moving and interesting. The person named Morbid. Yeah, say, yeah, yeah. Um, and. I have to tell you, I think because of my initial fascination with this case, I went into it with a better attitude than all of you guys. And so I got more out of it than you guys did. I agree that the web sleuth stuff wasn't clear. I wish it had been. I think it would have made a huge difference. Take that out and take out the, you know, some of the issues I think that really were related to production issues, which, you know, whatever. 
I'm I liked it. I, I was entertained by it. Sorry, I got to give it a thumbs up. Wait, did you say production issues? Whatever. No, 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 no. <laughs> Rebecca Lavoie said production issues. No, whatever. I'm. Okay, that, that's so, not what. That's not. That's not a, a phrase I was expecting I'm, to hear from you. I am saying I did also not like the repeated drone shots. However, I went into it with a better attitude because I know it is freaking hard to make things right now. Just like we reviewed this thing last week that had all the animation and you thought that was intentional. I'm like, no, it's because they couldn't shoot any B-roll. Yeah, and it, it but was that great. was awesome. It was creative. I agree. Yeah. I, but the one thing I will say with Laura that I agree with is this could have been a two episode thing instead of a four episode thing. I think it would have been a lot tighter. That being said, the parts I liked, I liked and I, I liked enough for it to be a thumbs up for me. Sorry, guys. I guess we have to agree to disagree on this one. No, we don't. <laughs> Now it's time for my favorite part of the podcast, a little something I like to call the crime Crime of of the week. The week. Police in Indianapolis cracked a year old mystery of Roger Farmer, who disappeared during a hunting trip. Something didn't add up for one of his daughters. There was something off about the last text messages he sent her. When he said where he was going, he used emojis. (laughs) She told police the slow-typing grandfather liked to use his voice-to-text feature. So, as with most grandfathers, the messages were often long, run-on sentences with no punctuation. No smiley faces, no eggplants, no dancing twin girls, no peaches, thank God. This week, authorities arrested the man's son, Jeremy. The body has not been recovered, but witnesses say Jeremy bragged about shooting his father and putting him in a freezer. Roger's credit card was also used after his disappearance. Now, some of us who play tech supports for our grandparents and parents, those of us uh, resetting passwords, explaining Facebook or teaching them how to use Zoom, this hits close to home. So Remember this case the next time Mima asks you how to take a selfie, please. <laughs> now, panel, here's my question. You can't impersonate a grandpa and use emojis. What are some other telltale signs that someone might be impersonating a senior citizen? Laura Bricker, what do you think? Um, well, I would be going to the four o'clock dinner seating to get the early bird discount. <laughs> mm. So someone's eating at like eight o'clock, you know, they're not old. Is that what you're saying? If you're eating at four o'clock, you are definitely old because you get the discount. It's like the Del Boca Vista in Seinfeld. <laughs> Toby Ball, what are some other telltale signs that someone might actually be impersonating an older person? I can't tell you which episode of Matlock was on yesterday. <laughs> oh, yeah. <laughs> Kevin Flynn, what about you? If they say something about wanting to swipe right on that. (laughs) (laughs) You're saying they're impersonating someone. Yeah. All right. Well, we should probably end on that note. But before we do, Lara Bricker, do we have a cat of the week this week? We have a pot-bellied pig (gasps) and a Jack Russell Corgi cross. Wow. Named yes. They come Cross from Cross with the pig. Is or? this all one animal? Yeah. <laughs> it's it's two animals. They're pals. Um the pig they with were very short legs. <laughs> sent in by I don't know the real name of the person, Galloping Gale. And they are called Pickle and Daisy. Helping with the morning barn chores. Pickle is a free-range rescue pig, and Daisy is a Jack Corgi. So then I wanted a little more information about what was going on with these animals, so I inquired some more. Pickle ignores all the animals unless they try to get his food or in front of the great line. Pickle is a food whore. 
Nice. I can appreciate I that I love me pickle. a food whore. Yeah, I, me too, I mean, pickle. at this yeah. stage of pandemic life, I can appreciate a food me whore. Me so. too. Good job, pickle. All right, Laura Bricker, if folks want to send their random pigs or dogs or other crosses or other kinds of animals to you to be cat of the week, how can they find you on Twitter? At Laura Bricker. And we should say, you can also submit them in our Facebook group or by email, crimewriterson at gmail.com. Toby Ball, folks want to reach out to you and just compliment you on your insightful questions about the greatest podcast of the year. How can they find you on Twitter? At Toby Ball NH. And Kevin Flynn, if folks want to follow you on Twitter and maybe perhaps watch one of the greatest television stories ever produced in New Hampshire, how can they find you on Twitter? I'm at Kevin P. Flynn. And we should mention our whole love story is on Twitter right now, framed around one of the greatest television pieces that's ever been filmed in New Hampshire. Right, Kevin? Because it was done by me. <laughs> if you want to follow me on Twitter or Instagram, you can find me at Reb Lavoy. You can also follow the show on Twitter at Crime Writers On, and I encourage you to join our really, truly incredible community and our official Crime Writers On Facebook discussion group, a place that our members describe as the only safe community on Facebook. Don't know how we did it, but we did. I guess it's because we kicked out all the assholes. Support the show at patreon.com slash partners in crime media, and you will get the Crime Writers On After Show, Married with Podcast, Toby Ball's Deep Dive Book Club Podcast, and Laura Bricker's Leave It to Bricker Podcast. Our theme song was composed and performed by Ty Gibbons. Our line editor is the very handsome and collegiate Olivia Burdett. Our executive producer is Kevin Flynn. This show was recorded in the yoga loft above the bodega in Bay St. Louis, Mississippi studio, otherwise known as Studio C, the closet in our New Hampshire basement, where we also make wild accusations online about shit we don't know about. On behalf of all the crime writers, thanks so much for listening. We will catch you later. Hello? Hi. Why Hello? can't I see anyone? Uh, we can I see don't know. you. Did you change your um, settings? So that Hold on. My mouse is going mental on me. What the fuck? <laughs> what the fuck is going it's on It's definitely... Here? Leave and come back. It's okay. We'll let you back in. Mental no, mouse. I think it reduced... Oh, there you are. <laughs> Did it make Hold us on. tiny? I don't know what's... It. My mouse is still going crazy. What the fuck? Is it like running around the screen and you're not Does it realize to how many yes, cats you it's have? It's like... It do, it, it's I don't know what the fuck it's Will <laughs> oh my god Toby how it's, much you want to bet this is Will it's this, not that this would seems take... like the outtake right there <laughs> <laughs> that would take effort. it's always good to plan the funny thing oh this is the funny thing guys let's use this in an outtake <laughs> Yeah.